What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex podcast. I'm your host, Felicia, and I'm a lady talking about sex. This week, we have a really important topic to discuss. We've actually never covered it on the podcast before. We're going to talk about reproductive justice and also a lot of the intersecting identities that come into play when reproductive justice and social justice surrounding um, a lot of different topics that relate to sexuality and sexual health, predominantly a lot of topics that affect women or uterus owners. Um, So we have Michelle Hope here with us. Michelle, would you love to introduce yourself? What's up, everybody? My name is Michelle Hope. I'm a sexologist. Uh, Oftentimes when people hear that, they assume that I may primarily work in the space of the act of sex. But really what my passion is and what I've dedicated my work to is understanding um, deeply and helping other communities understand what reproductive justice is. Um, and, And I'm a reproductive justice activist. So if you've never heard the term before, I think, you know, and we'll get into this, it's really understanding that it is a human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, to have children, to not have children, to parent the children we do have in safe and sustainable communities. So under that statement, there are so many things that are connected to social justice. So I always like to tell people that a couple things, one, from the womb to the tomb, sexuality is a part of your life. And two, what I look at is the sexuality of social justice. So what, from what I know, I know you didn't have a conventional kind of path to sexology. How mm-hmm. was, I, I, I think online, I saw that you were a dancer before. How has yeah. that kind of helped you and potentially even pushed you into this realm? Well, I think first of all, really understanding Um, what sexuality means to different people. And, you know, while my path might not be the uh, normal academic track, uh, I I experienced that at a time when, you know, I didn't have a lot of options for work. I hadn't been a great college student. I hadn't gone to formal university yet. And in that moment, I had to use what I had to support my livelihood. And at that time, what did I have? I had a tight body, some skills to dance, and I needed money and I needed employment. And that at the time was the best route for me. Um, It was an opportunity for me to learn very deeply what the experience of people in the sex industry or what people would say sex work is. Oftentimes when people say sex work, they think about um, individuals who some would say are prostitutes uh, or are um, sex workers specifically. But what we have to understand is the idea of a sex worker is an umbrella term and we should be using it as an umbrella term to destigmatize the word because anybody who provides a service that is connected, directly connected uh, to sex is a, is, could, would fall under that category of a sex worker. So a porn director, a porn producer, a uh, adult film performer, someone who is uh, providing services, somatic uh, sex work, or anybody who chooses to engage in sex work would all be, sex educators uh, would even fall under that umbrella if we really start to look at that term as people who work in the industry of sex. Um, so it's not a bad word. So that gave me a really deep understanding. And then 
it paid for my school. It paid for me to go to college, which was the formal education I needed to better understand how I could help communities in these spaces. So for people who are a little bit confused as to like what reproductive justice entails, because it, it is very, it is another umbrella term. And granted, we're based out of Canada, but a lot of people think that, you know, reproductive justice is accessible here just as much as it is like in any like Scandinavian country, which isn't the truth. Um, and a lot of conversations around reproductive justice, especially around Trump's presidency and Planned Parenthood era, that's kind of where the conversation starts and ends on like the mainstream level, I think. So what is reproductive justice for someone who like has no idea what we're talking about? Well, it is the belief that reproductive justice is about bodily autonomy and being able to make decisions about your sexual and reproductive health that are best for you. So as I mentioned before, it's this idea that uh, we all have bodily autonomy and we should have access to information, education, and care that aligns with what we want for our own bodies. So when we have a child, how to bring that child into the world, how to abstain from having children, whether that's through legal abortion and or access to birth control. Um, and the biggest part is being able to raise the children we already have in safe and sustainable environments. Um, when you think about the type of environments that people who are coming from disenfranchised and marginalized communities have to raise their children, that's not always safe, nor is it sustainable. Right. Uh, so you have to look at this simply as the idea that all people have the right to make decisions about their bodies and their sexual health as they see fit. But that must come along with the education and access to information, as well as access to equitable care. Now, the term reproductive justice was coined by um, a group of women of color and was really brought into the national dialogue by Sister Song, um, which is a collective of Black women um, that fight for the rights of all people. You know, reproductive justice isn't just about women's rights, it's about trans rights. It's about the LGBTQ community. It's about human rights and human dignity for all. So, for folks who are still understanding kind of how to approach things from an intersectional lens, because I think that this is something that we have a lot of trouble with, even, you know, when I come to the forefront of my organization with my team, I really try and make sure that we're having that approach. How do we think different intersections, especially race, affect people's right to reproductive justice, access to reproductive care, because mm -hmm. there's definitely been some really interesting statistics around birth control. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's a very tumultuous history with birth control that is a different episode to talk about in itself. But for people who are still a little bit unsure as to, okay, why can't we just say it's women's rights? Or why can't we just say, you know, it's, you know, it's for femme identifying people. Why do we have to have this intersectional lens and how does that affect all folks in this domain? Well, I think for that specific question, we have to look at like 
the idea of maternal mortality rates, right? And the idea that in the United States, Black women have a three times higher risk of experiencing maternal mortality than their white counterparts. And there is a combination of assumptions as to why that is, whether it's lack of access um, towards great quality care or a lack of access to information and quality education around pregnancy and um, pregnancy and labor and delivery. You know, I think in addition to that, the reason we cannot coin this as just a women's issues is because there are trans people who identify as men who are still carrying a uterus and can carry children. So we have to be aware that their experience around their reproductive rights, if we're not in an equitable space, will be compromised. Um, and intersectionality is, is so vital to things like reproductive justice and social justice as well. And if you're not sure what intersectionality is, it's this idea that coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, the idea that you can experience oppression in many, many different forms and it will land on a person um, very uniquely depending on what their status is. So you think, okay, well, if um, a woman uh, it, it does not make the same pay, that's because she is a, a woman um, and that's a wage gap issue, right? So, but if it's a black woman, now there is some idea that because they are black, because they are women, they are not receiving. So it's two different ways. And now if they're a black trans woman, now we're looking at three areas in which they can be marginalized uh, by communities. So you just got to kind of think of it as when you think about intersectionality, really think of that intersection like a four-way stop and how many different spaces can somebody be hit with oppression because of their identity? I really love that analogy that you just gave. That's really awesome, especially for people who are still trying to figure it out. And I think a lot of the folks that are, well, I, mean, I wouldn't say they're trying to figure it out or they just don't get it, are the folks that are the least marginalized uh, people. And a lot of, there was like a huge trend on TikTok like months back uh, of like young intersectional feminists kind of yelling at Christian protesters at like Planned Parenthoods. And typically when you look at the Christian protesters, it's white men and white women and they're Christian, obviously. So... Mm -hmm. How do we, in, like, and this is even a question, do we even engage in conversations with these folks who are so adamant about protecting a child's life when in reality they're just perpetuating a cycle of, like, unsafe homes and a ridiculous amount of foster children in foster care? Um, so, like, how do, we, how do we engage with these people do we engage with these people if it's safe to do so? And what's a good way in your experience to just change the narrative a little bit? Well, I think I really appreciate you saying change the narrative because what you're actually doing when you engage with those type of people, and let's be real, we should be, because a lot of times these are our parents, these are our uncles, these are our aunts, these are family members who grew up at a different time. I always encourage people to lead with data, 
right? You know, one of my favorite sayings is, in God I trust, everybody else come with data. So make sure you know the data and, and use those, those data points as, as a way to point to the inequities that people in marginalized communities are experiencing. And then make sure you're educating yourself. So I totally encourage people to go and check out Sister Song um, as a resource. I think that the Black Women's Blueprint is another organization that you can look to and read um, literature from them and really educate yourself. Again, Kimberly Crenshaw, the, the founder of Intersectionality, do your research, know what you're talking about. Um, and remember that a lot of times these ideas and norms are rooted in religion, which that is a hard mental model to shift, right? Um, as well as it's hard for people to conceptualize what they don't know and what they've never experienced. So make sure you go with grace uh, when having these conversations. And the last thing, and this is real important, you're not gonna change everybody's mind, right? So recognize how far you're willing to go in conversation with somebody and know that one conversation is not going to solve the world's social justice problems. It is got to be said and reiterated over and over and over again before somebody's mental model shifts. It's kind of like when you're introducing food to a child for the first time, <laughs> they have to be exposed to it about 13 times uh, before they'll know whether or not they can eat it or like it or so it's just you got to keep going but make sure you go with data you go with grace and you are compassionate in those spaces um, because what you don't want to do is act as though you know what is right for a community if you have never experienced the hardships of that community absolutely and that's then, a hard pill to swallow <laughs> I think the hardest pill to swallow there is understanding you're not going to fix this issue overnight. And while you might have a lot of vigor and a lot of tenacity, these are issues that have been going on for a very long time. And it's not that you can instantly fix it with a TikTok post, an Instagram post, a, a retweet, a like, a hashtag, like this work. I've been in this field for a very long time and, and this work takes decades, if not generations to correct. So that being said, look inward and ask yourself, how am I perpetuating these problems? Because oftentimes we do that without even knowing we're doing that. No, absolutely. I honestly, I grew up in a very Catholic home. I was very, uh, I was going to say pro-child. I don't even know what it's called anymore. I was very pro-life, quote unquote, until I was about 20 years old. And for someone who has been learning and educating and trying my best, it's something I don't feel attached to at all anymore. But I really didn't have any education on the topic, on the systematic forms of oppression, not in America, in Canada, like to see it firsthand or not see it firsthand, but like to meet people who've experienced it and to see forms of oppression so in my face outside of my like institution of a home that I grew up in so uh, sh like sheltered it was a, a very big learning and growing 
issue. And I always was the girl who was like, I would never tell someone not to do it, but I just wouldn't do it. And like, that's a problem in itself. And it's something that I've had to kind of swallow and like rectify. And I've apologized to anyone that I've ever like said that to that that could have hurt. But like, I I think it's important to know that there are so many opportunities for folks to change. Granted, I'm the the poster child for for that. Um, And I, but the thing is, I think too, with these like, these conversations and these educational resources, I feel like having these conversations hopefully hit the root before kind of like the plant grows, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like folks shouldn't have to go through that kind of like coming to sexual liberation. I feel like they should just see both options and then make the decision for themselves. I didn't have that opportunity when I was younger. I mean, I'm still young, but in my early developmental years. Well, that's kind of the problem is there's a lack of, you know, equitable, accurate, medically accurate, age appropriate, inclusive sex education, not just in North America in general, right? Um, and, and I think that that's a great place to start is asking your college, your high school, your local community schools, what is the sex education plan? And why aren't we talking about these things? Because if we can educate people younger, that's speaking to that. Hopefully we hit the root before the the plant grows. But you have to really recognize that sexuality does not start when puberty starts. It does not begin when you become sexually active. It is something that you grow grow up in, you you grow up with, it, it develops at different stages of your life. And there are important conversations that we should be having at all of those stages of life that will help us come to a more empathetic, more understanding um, sense of, of, of knowledge, I guess you could say, around what sexual liberation is, or what sexuality is, or what reproductive justice is, you know, I think for me, as I've worked in the classroom, I was always trying to teach my students what reproductive justice was, even down to middle school, because the root of it is bodily autonomy. That's your body, you have the right to make decisions about it, especially when you have access to information and education that allows you the knowledge to make those decisions for yourself. So it starts with education. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I definitely think we're at a very unique time where like I do a lot of this work too on the ground and a lot, like I haven't had a peer that's like rejected anything yet, but I've had professors that have rejected a lot of things. So it's very interesting to kind of be at this point where I can see millennials and Gen Z's kind of coming to a communal understanding of like, this is kind of what we agree with because we all have our own traumas that have Mm -hmm. stemmed from the lack of education here or the lack of resources or support or whatever that may be. But we got a few generations of of us that are still really not on board. Well, I think here's to that. Let me speak to that. I think that that's where we have to show up with grace because we all have trauma that's rooted in sexual issues, whether that's a physical trauma or just an emotional trauma. Like I too was raised Catholic and the church can really, 
really put these <laughs> ideas in your head that are like, if I think about sex, I'm sinning. So trauma doesn't always look like a physical assault, right? It can look like being, uh, being made fun of because you developed or blossomed too soon in period or because you developed or blossomed too late. And, and what comes along with the, the teasing from, from your peers, right? But if we had sex education, we could avoid all of that. And so with generations above us, not only were they not given the education, they also oftentimes were not given the proper tools to manage their experience with trauma around sexuality. So they have, it's almost like a wound that gets a keloid scar. So that, that trauma that was once open now has this really big scar on it and scar tissue. And that has to be excavated before that wound can heal properly in a way that doesn't bear the mark of that trauma. And I think when you get that pushback from older generations, it's really you just running into that scar tissue. And scar tissue is hard. So you have to have grace in that space because they're only doing in their minds what they think is right based on what they have been taught. And the mind cannot determine what is right, what is real from what it has been taught, right? So you have to find ways to help unteach them and then reteach them, not to mention our society because of things like the internet, it, 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 ideas move so quickly that as a society, we cannot keep up with the, the speed at which new ideas are forming throughout communities. So as a collective, it's very difficult for us to always be on the same page because if people haven't been exposed to information or haven't been given the opportunity to see how a certain law or a certain um, idea impacts communities they've never had experiences with, that really inhibits them from being able to see both sides evenly. So for like a person like me, I grew up in a very white environment. And granted, I know a lot of the statistics in relation to like POCs and in particular indigenous communities in Canada um, and how reproductive justice affects them. How do I assert my position without like speaking over marginalized folks, if that makes sense? Well, well, to be quite frank, I think you're doing that right now by providing people with a platform through this podcast to tell their story to authentically talk about these issues in ways that you may not understand because you've not had the experience, but you're uplifting the voices of others, giving them the opportunity to talk about it while simultaneously educating your listeners on a large scale. This is where we start with conversations, listening, learning, and then allowing our, and then doing research afterwards. That's why I named some of those um, entities like, and I'll say it again, um, Sister Song, Black Women's Blueprint, you know, these are the spaces that you want to go read an article, you know, subscribe to a newsletter so you can learn in real time with these organizations and people who are doing the groundwork in this specific space that know it intimately, right? Listen to Black women, listen to Black trans folks, 
right? Listen to marginalized communities, people of color, indigenous communities, listen to what they need instead of making assumptions on what you believe is best from a bird's eye view. No, absolutely. I think uh, the bird's eye view opinions just very easily trickle into white savior complex that we just need to stay away from. Yeah. But since you've been in this industry for a a long time, Mm -hmm. what are some like keynote things that you've kind of learned throughout your career that you just wish more folks understood or knew or had even just like a little light bulb moment about? I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say the wrong thing. Um, I have learned that there, through painful experiences, when I've taken up too much, too much space in a conversation, when I thought that I was an expert in something And then in hindsight, realized, no, not an expert there, took up too much space, and I overspoke others. So I think really the keynote thing that I would tell people to take take away is, you know, listen first, pause, and and don't respond right away. Listen, Um, actively listen. Don't listen with the, because this is what we usually do is we listen, and instead of listening and taking in the information, we're already trying to formulate a response. Stop that. Just listen and sit with the information before you jump to conclusions or jump to a response. Um, and, And have grace for yourself that this is a learning process and you're probably gonna mess something up, okay? And when you do apologize, accept that you've done wrong and maybe you've caused harm to someone and apologize sincerely, but think, don't just immediately think about what you've done. Do a little research, find out what you might've said that was hurtful, but listen. I think the listening is the key. I really, I really appreciate that. I think that a lot of honestly industries and different career paths don't have that approach at all. And that's something that I found really, really beautiful about the sex work sex ed community I think that it's it's still a growing industry because it's been so neglected by like the science community by men in general like the information that we have we still have a lot of it but we don't have anything compared to like the information we have about like weird chemistry things or like weird physics things like it's just not comparable which is so strange because it's like our bodies but anyways (laughs) and I think that that's really really important especially because we're always talking and even when we're approaching things with an intersectional lens there are things that I will never I will never understand I will never understand what it's like to be a POC and granted even though my intentions are always good I will always make mistakes and I think that that's Something that I think our society needs to get better at recognizing, because I think everybody thinks they're an expert in everything. And I'm like, then who is an expert? (laughs) Like, it just, so it's, no, I really, really appreciate that. And I think that the grace thing is something that, especially young folks, even myself, are like, I still have a lot of trouble giving myself grace. I want to do everything right the first time. And that's not how life works. Mm -mm. So I think that that can kind of 
be projected onto any path or just like any place that you go even just like not as a career but just as like a person and a human Mm -hmm. and I think that that's something that the sex work community kind of really does very well in my opinion um because sex is so intimate um but yeah I really really appreciate that um so in your experience with your work um what are some conversations that you wish folks would because I also I sometimes feel like I'm in the sex positive bubble and I don't see sometimes that side of the or the opposing side of the conversations I don't see sex negative stuff I'm I'm at a post-secondary university like I'm in this kind of just like with blinders on um and what's something that you see either with your clients or you just see out in the world that you wish people normalized like more I mean I think we need to remove the taboo around the word sex around the word sexuality Um, We need to go beyond this fear of talking about sexuality in a way that's connected directly and only to the act of sex, right? So one of the things I say a lot is let's normalize conversations about sexuality and think beyond what we've been taught that sexuality is either about the act of or the biology of people and look at it like start thinking about like how does gender connect to sexuality? Because it's a thing. How does the commercials we watch on TV that sexualize inanimate objects like food connect to how we understand? Or, you know, if you have this haircut, you're going to be sexy. Or if, you know, if you wear this outfit, you'll be able to attract someone. Um, I think we need to just start having conversations about sexuality more often and not be afraid of them. I think that, you know, we really, with these, with the people who are opposed to sex positivity, again, I'm going to go back to grace. What is it in them that makes them uncomfortable talking about that? And I think that's why we get so frustrated with the other side is because we are not taking a step back and saying, huh, I wonder why it is that they believe that. Could they have had a traumatic experience that I don't know about that really triggers them in a way to drive them to a more conservative view? Is it because nobody's ever had any conversation with them, so therefore they don't know how to have these conversations, which again, drives them to a more conservative view. I think that it's really about having conversations. Okay, this is something I did with my classroom. And and when I would teach every day, we did an activity called Sex in the News. And I would require students to put something that would fall into the category of sexuality, gender, LGBTQ, same-sex marriage, um, sexual harassment into Google. And then I would tell them to click on news and to see what articles come up and then read about those, read those articles and formulate their own thoughts and opinions around them. Was this a biased story? Do you see where somebody was marginalized? Like there's a, you just have to keep reading and learning and, and really engaging in the content in ways that can open up your thinking, right? 
Um, and when you're in a sex positive bubble, which can be a real thing, I, I, I know that for sure it can be a real thing. Start to listen to the other side. Just to, I always like to listen to right wing stuff just so I can understand what they're talking about. Just so I know what they're, it might be nonsense to me, but I at least want to know what they're saying, right? Um, because if I don't have any idea where they're coming from, how do I give them arguments or points of reference to pivot their thought process, to change their mental model, to shift their thinking, right? You have to be in the know. So I think it's, you know, do your research, be aware of both sides, because a lot of times this is incredibly complex. And sometimes there is no right answer, or we have not found the right answer yet. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. I, sometimes I get, I think the new thing right now for me is getting Jordan Peterson videos sent to me from different men. And that I just can't listen. <laughs> it's too much uh, for my like mental health and just my soul. But um, I do agree. And my brother does this a little bit better than I do. And he's like, I follow equal parts conservative and liberal just to see like what it's like, what that community is like. I definitely have to get better at putting up some like mental boundaries before doing that. <laughs> Cause it does, it does kill me a little bit on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also really important that you bring that up is self-care because when you're dealing in issues like this, they're very heavy. They can be very emotionally charging and when we are not in a space to recognize what's going to impact us and trigger us, we start tweeting, we start flying off the tweet handle. And that's what you don't want to do. So that's why you have to really figure out what are the boundaries, what are, what is triggering for you and really identify your positions, like identify what you believe in. But to do that, you have to educate yourself. A really great book, um, Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. Incredible. It's an incredible look at feminism from the perspective of a Black woman. Uh, Brittany Cooper is a professor um, and, and very powerful book. A very, very powerful book. And it combines data with life experience. So I urge people to read that. Um, and then just remember, like, all these things, everybody got an opinion, like they have a butthole, right? And a lot of them is funky and they smell bad. So you can't take in everything, right? Um, but you also can't limit yourself to just a sex positive lane or you won't be able to see the big picture, but you should have some idea of what you'll allow, what you'll take in and what you won't take in. So I say, if you're gonna read something far on the right, read something far on the left and make sure you're balancing it all out evenly with with what you're taking in no I think that that's great and I think it's really <clears throat> relevant to our conversation surrounding reproductive justice because I think that that's something that everybody wants to advocate for regardless on what side they are on and whether they have a uterus or whether they don't have a uterus um so I think it's it's really really important um to note and to also learn about how to eloquently and gracefully advocate for things instead of just like spewing shit from your ass uh 
because that's what a lot of people tend to do. And sometimes, honestly, when I'm charged, me too. Like, (laughs) you know, I've done it. I've done it. We're all human. But I think that these were really, really good conversations and really key points. And thank you for providing us with resources. We're going to make sure that we link them in the podcast, um, like details, um, Mm -hmm. so that everybody can just hyperlink, pick up the books, check the resources, um, to do their own research. But I just wanted to thank you, Michelle, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciated it. Anytime, anytime. Thank you so much. And, you know, I always encourage people, I try to put out really great info and I try to, you know, again, this is pretty heavy. So I try to like lighten it up with a little bit of humor because some of this stuff is so ridiculous. It's funny. So follow me, social media at MHSexpert. Um, you know, that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at MHSexpert. I also want to encourage people to get involved in local organizations. So identify, um, you know, organizations in your community that that and do volunteer work for LGBTQ plus groups, find um, reproductive, I'm sure there are reproductive justice coalitions in your area, uh, women's rights groups in your area, do your research on those organizations and make sure that their um, focus and their belief system is in alignment with your belief system and go to work, do the work, get out there, get on the ground. If you passionately believe in something, make a petition, do an action, get involved at a ground level is, is my best, is what I hope people would do. Don't just sit at home and listen to podcasts and tweets and hashtags. Get your ass out there in these streets and do the work, do the work. And everybody has the resources here because we have a high school outreach program and we also have a university initiative. So everybody knows where to go. (laughs) Get involved. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and all of Michelle's um, ats and handles and links will be in the podcast description. Make sure you go and follow her. Um, But yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and having this conversation with me. Um, If you're interested in learning more about Michelle's work, we will have all that detailed in the podcast description. If you're interested in hearing more episodes like this one, make sure to subscribe to the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex podcast for more episodes every Monday. Thanks for listening.